I'm delighted to be joined on the first episode of A Life Curated by legendary editor, journalist and author Dylan Jones. In the 1980s, Dylan started at ID, soon after rising to editor, and then became contributing editor of The Face and Arena. The next decade, Dylan became associate editor of The Observer magazine, then The Sunday Times magazine, then group editor of The Face, Arena, Arena On Plus, editor at large of The Sunday Times, before joining Condé Nast in 1999 and taking the biggest job in publishing as editor of GQ, where he remained at the helm for 22 years. During that time, GQ won 80 awards, including, personally for Dylan, Editor of the Year Award 11 times. He was also recognised for the Brand Building Initiative of the Year in 2007 for the hugely successful GQ Men of the Year Award. In 2013, Dylan was ordered an OBE to services to publishing. If that's not all, Dylan is also a critically acclaimed author, having written several books, including Mr Jones's Rule for the Modern Man, which was sold in 15 different countries, David Bowie, A Life, iPod, Therefore I Am, Cameron on Cameron, and his latest book, the much-anticipated Faster Than a Cannonball, coming out in October. My name is Nolan Brown. I'm an art advisor of the podcast. This is A Life Curated. Dylan, firstly, thank you so much for inviting us uh, into your quite magnificent house. And it's a perfect place because it's filled with art. And before we properly kick off, I just want to tell the listeners uh, how we met, because actually it works quite well into the theme of the podcast. It was 2016. I was in a bar in Hong Kong. I spotted you. I plucked up the courage after a whiskey sour and I went up to you and I introduced myself. You very kindly uh, came to the Tash and Stand at Art Basel the next day. However... It was when I started following you on Instagram and you posted a couple of weeks later one of my all-time favourite photographs, um, which is a Helmut Newton picture of Monica Bellucci from 2001, where she's got that magnificent, beautiful portrait and she's kind of looking up slightly and there's the napkin and the red lipstick. I have it hanging in my flat, sadly only a poster. At the time, Tashin had just published a book called Sex and Landscapes by Helmut Newton. It was the cover. And I curried it to you as soon as possible. And then you wrote to me one of the most charming cards I've ever received. A thank you note with a bowler hat or was it a, a black cab on it? Anyway, that's where the love affair started, certainly on my side. Well, very good to see you. So the early years. Dylan, what was your first art memory? I think the first time I remember art making, ha- having a huge effect on me was probably, yeah, early teens... Salvador Dali, Hockney, Warhol, etc., etc. The kind of obvious ones. But I have to say that Warhol has stayed with me ever since. Uh, and I think that, as we all know, as time has gone on, his influence uh, and his importance and his stature only only grows. But, but yeah, probably those three. I think. What was the art scene like you for you growing up? This is in the eighties, a quite tumultuous decade. I know there's a big music scene. You were one of the, the Blitz kids going to the Blitz Cub. Because it was, it was a period just before the YBAs. Um, can you describe that art scene growing up? Well, I think if you're talking about the 80s, um, I mean, one of the reasons that the YBAs were so influential and became uh, so mediated was because they almost appeared in a vacuum because there wasn't really a strong British art scene before the YBAs. And they kind of exploded because they were young. They were mainly working class. Uh, Some of them had been through the art school system, but they were reacting against an orthodoxy, um, which 
felt very, very old-fashioned because if you look at all the other art forms at the time, you look at literature and publishing, music, uh, theatre, they all felt quite vibrant and quite modern, but art still felt very old-fashioned. Absolutely. It was the days of, I saw major art uh, gallerists like Waddington Cousteau and Doffe, but it was actually really the the Americans, um, uh, as you mentioned, Warhol and also um, uh, Coons and Basquiat and Herring, who are really the big names in the art world then. Um, you are... Um, a journalist and and, uh, and an editor. Um, why did you choose Central St. Martins as the place to go to, to study, which you studied graphic design, film and photography? And well, why I, not I was at um, I was at Chelsea and um, there was a girl in on the graphics course at St. Martins that I fancied. So that's why I, I, I applied to St. Martins for three reasons. A, for her. Secondly, because it was St. Martin's and it's the best, it was then the best art school in the world. And thirdly, because it was in the middle of Soho. And at that time, 77, 78, that's where all the venues, where all the clubs were. And it was just, uh, you, you didn't really want to be anywhere else. You didn't want to be anywhere else in the world. You didn't really want to be any, uh, anywhere else in London. I mean, it was a very intoxicating time and a very intoxicating um, 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 location. And I remember when, actually, I used to go to a lot of uh, openings there and I remember... Um, when the building actually closed down, it was kind of quite a it was quite a big deal. Um, and obviously now they moved to uh, to King's Cross. Um, you wanted to become a photographer, um, which I read. Why didn't you pursue that? Because I wasn't any good. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I quite enjoyed it. I just I didn't have the passion for it. And I can, um, if I'm not interested in something, I, I I kind of switch off and get quite lazy. And I knew I wasn't good enough. I think I, if if I'd have had if I'd have persevered, I probably could have made it because it was a period in which photography was being entertained and lots of people were becoming photographers and there were lots of opportunities for um, young photographers uh, because there was an explosion in visual culture, there was an explosion in publishing, and like I say, there were lots of opportunities. But I just don't think I was any good. It almost mirrors. I, I, I managed to fail uh, probably the easiest course in curriculum history, which was the uh, London College of Printing, the foundation course in photography. Um, but mind you, I submitted my um, holiday snaps, which I went to, I went to, I went to Africa. <laughs> well, you pal- laugh, but I'm not actually joking. Really? <laughs> and, and I failed, but I did curate exhibitions then. Uh, Dylan, as I mentioned in the introduction, you rose uh, to the top the very, very top of, of publishing and, uh, and stayed there for, for many, many years. Um, what was your big break? I was very lucky because I did get a break. And I think that when, um, whenever I used to have interns or people doing work experience, they would often come for a chat and they'd nervously knock on my office door and come in and sit down and ask lots of questions. I'm not sure they ever listened because I think in that situation where someone's very young, they just want to get the words out and not appear to be a fool. So I'm not sure how much information they ever um, retain. But I always used to say two, two things. That if you have an opportunity, if someone gifts you an opportunity, two things you need to, and, and to get on. You need to work like stink, just work harder than you've ever worked before, work harder than, you've ever, than you could have imagined ever working um, and just volunteer for everything and become borderline annoying until you become indispensable. And I said, that will get you a long way. And I said, the second thing is you need to be lucky. 
Absolutely. Some people say you make your own luck. And I think if you work hard, you probably have more touch points. Um, so you probably do stand more chance of having a lucky break. But I got a lucky break because I was, I was doing lots of odd jobs and sort of entry level jobs because I didn't want to pursue a career because I hadn't found something that I wanted to do. So I, I would prefer to sort of doss around and do not very, I mean, I, I, I was a film extra, I was a barman. I did lots of kind of crappy jobs because I couldn't find anything that, that motivated me. Uh, and so I was conceited enough to think that something would happen along the way, but I didn't know what it was. But considering you're, you you published so many books, you weren't writing at the time, you didn't write poems or no, love letters or... No, I, I couldn't write. Um, I'm dyslexic. And so I had... I, I knew that I wanted to work in that world, but I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and then I was, my day consisted of getting up as late as possible, having one meal a day from a chip shop or somewhere awful, watching Channel 4 television, because that had just started, sitting in an empty flat, trying not to turn the heating on, because it was obviously cost money, one bar heater, and then going out to a nightclub. I mean, that was basically my life 20, 40 years ago. And then a photographer friend contacted me. He couldn't have called me because I didn't have a telephone. A guy called Mark Bailey, and he was doing some pictures for ID, and he needed someone to interview these people. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, nothing, uh, like yesterday and like tomorrow. <laughs> so I, uh, I went to this studio in Farringdon, and I interviewed all of these people that he was photographing. And the level of sophistication was probably you know, uh, where did you get your socks from and how much you hate Margaret Thatcher? I mean, I don't think it was particularly um, exalted stuff. Uh, and then I typed all this stuff up. I had a red Remington typewriter and I typed all this stuff and I think I probably posted it or delivered it to the office and didn't think anything of it. And then about a week later, I was at a friend's house in North Kensington, maybe Lab was it maybe Labrador Square, St. Charles Square, and there was a phone call for me, uh, and it was Terry Jones, who was the then the editor uh, of ID magazine, the man who started it, who created it, who'd previously been the creative director of uh, British Vogue. And he said, do you want a job? And that was it. He said, do you want a job? That's um, a break. And I said, yes. And then that's how it started. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I threw myself into it. I already knew that world because I lived it. And I think a lot of people involved in independent publishing at the time in London, in the style press, ID, the Face, Blitz, et cetera, et cetera. I think because we were, we very much felt that we were part of a, a scene. It was, a, it was the next iteration of Swinging London. And so we sort of knew lots of people. We knew lots of creators. We knew lots of people who went to nightclubs, who were photographers, models, video directors, singers, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of people on the cusp of, of becoming successful in the early parts of their career. So it was very intoxicating. And you were, you were living and working in this environment where not only were you commenting upon something that was happening, but you were part of it. So we were part of a, the underground, I suppose, because it was independent publishing. Uh, and it was very, very exciting and very intoxicating. And like lots of people at, at that stage in their careers, you sort of grew up in public. ID is still going, right? Yeah, very much so. And it's still kind of cutting edge. It's still, uh, yeah. um, still there. Um, what a start. Now, 
you then um, became group editor, excuse me, of the Face Arena, Arena On Plus. And although you have touched upon the YBAs uh, before, um, you were at the cultural center, really, the, the, um, the center of the, this kind of cultural shift. And as you mentioned, uh, the biz, kind of biggest cultural shift since the swinging 60s um, during the explosion of Cool Britannia. Um, what was that like being an editor, especially of, you know, the face in these, an arena, uh, these major, major titles? It must have been thrilling. Tell me. Um, I suppose it was. The thing is, you took a lot of it for granted. And in all the various jobs I did at that point, working for Terry Jones and working for Nick Logan, you were surrounded by a lot of very um, creative people. You were surrounded by uh, a lot of very connected people. And things moved very quickly because in the early 80s, when I started, we were all in our early 20s and your motivations are different, your energies are different, your ambitions are different. And so by the time of the early um, 90s, which is a period I've written about in in, uh, my new book, Faster Than a Cannonball, there was a new generation because lots of people who were starting their careers then were 10 years younger. A lot of the YBAs were probably five years younger than we we were. A lot, of, a lot of the groups were 10 years younger. So there was a new energy, and a lot of the things that were happening during that period were almost in opposition to what had happened in the 80s, as it should be. And I think if you look at any period of creative dominance, particularly in London, it's usually, there's usually a sort of groundswell of creativity mid-decade, and it's usually in opposition to what happened previously. Almost kind of rebelling or...? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You've almost answered it, but the YBA movement, how important was it for, for the UK culturally? Oh, I, I don't think it's possible to overestimate how important it was. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write about them so much in the book is because... They remain a constant source of fascination. Plus, I think the origins are very interesting because one of the people who has been forgotten about from that period is, is Doris Saatchi. Because when the original Saatchi Gallery opened in St. John's Wood, it was very much a Charles and Doris operation. That's right, I read that, yeah. And when they used to, um, when they started being the benefactors and the great patrons, of many of the young, uh, of the YBAs in the late 80s and early 90s. Even, even though she's very self-deprecating about it, she was the eye and, and Charles was the money. Charles used to collect jukeboxes and she was American. She already had a storied history of curation and, and collection and she knew about art and she understood what the YBAs were doing. Um, she understood that a lot of their influences were coming from America. She understood that they had a real sense of creative purpose. And she encouraged to, Charles to start investing. So for the book, I interviewed Damien and Tracy and Mark Quinn and Sue Webster and Michael Craig Martin and lots of other people. But I wanted to interview Doris because in all the pieces and the books and the TV documentaries about the YBAs, She's a forgotten person. And I went out of my way to, to, to try and get her involved. Um, and she didn't respond. So I just figured that's fine. I, I, so I started writing about her. I started interviewing people about her. And then I got an email 
the book was nearly finished. And I got an email saying, oh, it's Doris here. I'm sorry. I've been, you know, this, that and the other. But tell me what you're up to. So I told her what I was doing. And I asked her if I could interview. And she said, sure. And she said, do you want to do it now? I said, yes. Uh, so I did it right there and then. And um, she gave me a brilliant interview. She's fantastic. Um, very generous with her time and anecdotes. And she became an important part of the book. And I, uh, I'm glad you brought, uh, bring her up because actually I had read about her and the influence she had because everyone thinks it was Charles um, being the ad man. He was so good at advertising himself as well. But um, she really was the one behind the scenes. I want to touch very quickly on, on GQ and then we can talk about uh, art. You started at GQ in 1999, just when contemporary art was really, really booming. I know the, the YBA started in, in the late 90s with Freeze, uh, but you know the powerhouse galleries like White Cube um, and uh, Gagosin were coming to the fore. Also at the time, this is the kind of early 2000s, the idea of a mega global celebrity, um, perhaps a little bit too early for the Kardashians, but you know, so much money, there's kind of mega celebrity, uh, the advent of social media, all that mix. What was it like, you know, taking the helm of, of, of GQ? And um, was it just incredibly exciting? Was it uh, almost too much? Or what was your experience? Uh, yeah, it was very exciting. I mean, the um, uh, it was like being given a big train set, basically. Um, but uh, it was complicated because you were inheriting a title that was huge, that was selling in vast numbers. But it was a title that the that the company was slightly uncomfortable with because in the early, well, in the mid eighties, a magazine called arena had launched, which, which I edited for Nick Logan, which was the first men's magazine to be launched in this country for 20 years since Michael Heseltine's town magazine. And it was successful, but it was in, independent. Uh, and then Condé Nast launched GQ, then Hearst launched Esquire. And these magazines were very much, advertising-driven, luxury lifestyle titles. GQ was Vogue for Men. That's, that's, that's precisely what it was. And so was Arena, and so was Esquire. They had editorial differences and editorial nuances, but that's basically what they were. And then that all changed with the launch of Loaded in 94. And Loaded was inclusive, not exclusive. It was down market, not up market. It was funny, it was aggressive, it was ribald, um, slightly sexualized, and it was very successful initially. And that set in motion a real publishing boom. So you had, after Loaded, FHM was relaunched, uh, you had Maxim, you had Front, you had dozens of magazines, and they all became huge. I mean, we had, I remember once we had a, a representative from the American company who came over, who used to come to our cover meetings. We'd have cover meetings every month with our distributors in the boardroom at work. And we used to have all the competitive sets laid out on the, on the table. And this is after the boom. And he said, this magazine, FHM, is really different from you. Why is it on the table? And I said, well, because six, six years ago, that magazine was selling one million copies a month. Wow. Um, in, in the mid-90s, mid to, mid to late 90s, a huge, huge um, publishing explosion. And you could go to the W.H. Smith and Ludgate Circus on a lunchtime and see 
300 men in there looking at magazines during their lunch hour and, and they'd all they'd look at them decide which one they were going to buy buy one and go back to the office now of course you go in and it's empty <laughs> so because these down market aggressive quite sexualized uh, lads mags had become so successful Condé Nast decided to spruce up or spice up GQ and go down that route so they hired James Brown from Loaded, he was there for 18 months, wasn't fantastically successful. I think it was a bit of a a culture clash. But James certainly re-energized the magazine. So I inherited a magazine that was quite ribald, but it didn't really sit within the the Condé Nast portfolio. And I think they were slightly embarrassed about it because the subject matter of these magazines, the driving impetus was sex, was, was, was flesh. So I suppose what I did is I kept the furniture, I kept the way the magazine looked, the way the magazine felt, but basically tried to inject journalism into it. So in the way that you could buy Vanity Fair at the time, and it would have a very anodyne interview with a Hollywood celebrity on the cover, inside it would have lots of fantastic features about crime, uh, espionage and society, um, gossip, etc., etc., etc. So it's all about packaging, basically. So we were fusing two ideas of keeping a very successful commercial package, but trying to inject a lot of journalism into it, which we did, and we did it very successfully. But my my job was to to grow the circulation, grow the revenue of the magazine, and uh, if I could in, improve editorial on that journey, so be it. But my first task was making sure that I didn't bugger it up. Um, which you didn't because you left it in very rude health. And um, uh, numbers were, 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 I read recently that numbers are very high. Um, but also I, I felt that um, you took it beyond a magazine. You took it to a brand. And, um, you know, the GQ Men of the Year was uh, as an example. I mean, that part, you know, there's parties and then there's the GQ Men of the Year Awards, which was actually the names that you attracted from all over the world was pretty sensational um and so you know credit to you for taking uh, the magazine to to a completely different level and also being there for 22 years just to to round that up uh, your favorite cover if it's possible was it prince harry was it uh, did you ever put prince charles on the cover uh yeah we we put charles on the cover in 2017 it's a rather moving shoot wasn't it wasn't it highgrove uh no it was shot in clarence house in clarence house in clarence house um the favourite cover and favourite. I'm not art. sure. I have a. I think it's always invidious to have to to to, to single things out. But um, yeah, we did William, we did Harry, we did Charles. Those were very good covers, and we had covers that that that, that made a lot of noise. I mean, we had we'd had Kylie on the cover half a dozen times, uh, our Rihanna Damien Hurst cover uh, with Rihanna as Medusa. That was that was quite a big deal, and also. The magazine, I was there for a long time, so the magazine went through lots of different changes. And some covers I remember with great fondness, but you look at them now and they they look sort of out of kilter. But I think it was one of the big problems was that when I inherited the magazine, it was very difficult to put men on the cover because it didn't sell. And we wanted to put men on the cover because we felt that having a man on the cover better reflected the tone of the editorial because if you had a woman on the cover 
by dint of that, you, she, she had to be sexualized in a way. And we did it. I mean, we were very good at it. And I'm not embarrassed about it. And I wasn't embarrassed about it then because it was a job of work. But it was, you were certainly playing to the, to the market. Uh, and so I think the, the, the covers I like are probably, um, they're, uh, they're probably men, I think. Um, and they were all um, incredibly well shot. I just remember they really stood out. Um, uh, I mean, I've described you. You very, very incredibly and kindly put me in GQ a couple of times. So I was... I yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> exactly. Sales plummeted, right? Um, so I want to bring it back to the art. Um, what does art do for you? Uh, well, I think the, the art world now is more exciting than it's ever been mm-hmm. because I think that the world has changed so much and I think that there are more artists now, there are more bad artists now, there are more ways to buy art obviously there's a whole digital nft world too but also i think that the art world's probably more interesting than the entertainment world because i think if you're looking for art with a big a or a small a that has a comment on society that can shift society that can reflect society that can engage with society through media in a particular way that's going to be in the visual arts it's not going to be in music anymore i think music has become very generic a lot of that is to do with distribution models and media but it does feel like the entertainment industry particularly in music is sort of reaching the end of something whereas you look at the art world and i wouldn't say it's the beginning of something but it feels like we're in the middle of something that's very interesting whether it's photography whether it's art made for social media, whether it's paint, you know, whatever. I just think it's, um, I went to something last night that Paul Simonon was doing in Albemarle Street. And you can go, I mean, every night of the week, you can go to half a dozen fantastic openings and see really interesting, rich art. I know. And I think that's uh, just the other day, I, um, I just went to the National Gallery I, actually, I watched Fake Fortune and then I was inspired. And so I went to the National Gallery and wandered down for three or four hours. And you just, you get so up close and personal with some absolute masterpieces. And, you know, we're, we're so lucky in London. There's, it's, it's, uh, it's rich um, with amazing art. Um, what was the last piece you bought? I'm buying something at the moment from a, from a young British artist, but I'm not going to tell you who it is in case you get involved. In <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, we can we speak after the recording, right? Um, <laughs> we both have uh, uh, two things in common. We both have the same birthday, but also we both have a, a real passion for Tracy Emin's work. And when I bought my print from uh, White Cube, first I, I couldn't believe that uh, I could get hold of one. And it's uh, called Move. It's this fabulous gouache where she's lying back and it's just, it's it's scratchy. It's very her and it's just, I love it more and more every day. Um, I know that you're, you're, you're very close to Tracy. Um, how did that uh, relationship develop or come about? Uh, it came about, we met about 20 years ago and um, we met in Liverpool Street Station. We, we both wanted to meet each other and so we organised, I organised for someone who worked for me to organise a meeting and we met uh, on, on sort of neutral ground in Liverpool Street Station uh, yeah, over 20 years ago. And um, yeah, and, and a relationship developed and she started uh, working for the magazine 
she wrote poetry for us for a while. She did drawings. She started coming to all our events. We started doing events together. And yeah, so we developed a personal relationship as well as a professional one. But I don't think she's, she's quite extraordinary. Well, she's not quite extraordinary. She is extraordinary. extraordinary. She is extraordinary. And I think that, again, personally and professionally, I think that she has grown so much as an artist and she's changed so much. Not, not to diminish her early work, which is, which is still so clever and so vibrant and so different from anything else that was happening at the time. And lasts as well and has lasted. Mm. But I think that the work she does now has so much depth and so much power and is informed by not just experience, but also by expertise. And she's also shown that it's not all about the shop of the new. She's a fantastic painter. She's a fantastic sculptor. And also, it's you might not like what she does. You might not like her, and that's fair enough. But because she can be quite divisive, but I think that you can't doubt the depth with which she feels her creative, her, her, her creative momentum, I think is fascinating because it's real. And there are lots of great artists in the world and there are lots of great British artists, but I don't think I know anyone who has the emotional intensity of Tracy, which again, I think, that turns a lot of people off because she is so intense. But I remember, oh, I don't know, five years ago, something like that, I asked her to come to talk at the Hay Festival and she came to stay at the house and she did this talk and it was the biggest tent. It was the tent that's got, holds about 1,500 people. And it was like interviewing the Queen Mother. I mean, she's like, she was like a national treasure. She is f- famous, but she doesn't ex- exploit it. She's not on television all, 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 all the time. She hasn't turned turned herself into a um, uh, a sort of comedy version of herself, but it was quite extraordinary to see the outpouring of love and the uh, the interest in her and the appreciation for her of her as a, as a person as much as an artist. So yeah, she's great. She's terrific. She she really is, and. Um... You know, you said a lot of very interesting things there, but I think her work is so emotive, and I really kind of pick up on that. And um, as I said, I love my, I love Move, the print I bought. Um, but also, uh, just kind of going back to, to, you know, when people say, "Oh, what is that? A tent or a bed?" But actually, the thing I love the most about the YBAs, um, particularly Tracy, was the fact that in 1999 or early 2000s, you know, the contemporary art market in London was pretty staid. It wasn't, you know, mega gramping as Americans who were really taking over. And she exhibited a bed. And I think the fact that she went for such a shocking work that created so much interest was pure genius, really. Where, you know, Damien did the spots, she just came out and obviously the shark. But I think that was just a, a masterstroke and something that never, no one had ever seen, something I love in, in, in work. I want to talk, uh, lastly, about one of your great passions and uh, I, I want to say talent as well, but uh, you've written over 20 books. Um, before we talk about Faster Than a Cannibal, which is coming out, I think, in October, right? Um, have you ever thought about writing an art book or an art biography? Um, I thought about it. I haven't... Um, I, I, there isn't an, an idea that appeals to me so much at the moment, but it was important to write about the 90s 
with any degree of relevance, you, you have to talk about the art world. And, and the, the more, when I was writing um, the book, the art component certainly grew and grew and grew because it could have been all about the art world in the 90s just because it was so interesting. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not... Um, I, I think the, 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 the material on the art world, on the YPAs in the book, is good, but... I'm surprised there isn't more literature about the YBAs. You think there's going to be hundreds of books about the YBAs. There actually aren't. They're more kind of excerpts or chapters in art books, aren't they? Well, uh, like the yeah, the it, just, it just hasn't been covered in the way that I would expect it to have been. I, I mean, it obviously will. Um, and I think a lot of the attention, because this happens with everything, I think a lot of the attention on the YBAs is so focused on the early part of their their emergence that it becomes almost cliched. It's like talking about the, the cliched elements of Britpop or punk mm. or indeed hip-hop or the 60s. And I think as, as there increasingly is so much attention paid to that post-war period of pop culture that the minutiae of that period, everything that happened, every frame. I wrote a piece about this once. You think that you take that picture there, which was taken by Terry O'Neill of his wife, Faye Dunaway, the morning after she won the Academy Award for appearing in Network. And it staged that picture. I mean, she did win the Oscar. They were staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. She was reading all those newspapers. But it's, a, it's, it's an art-directed photograph and it says a lot about that world. It's brilliant. But we are now in a world where you think to yourself as a collector or as someone who's in, who is in charge of the archive, how many rolls of film did he use? And, and let's say we, we are now in a world where, let's say Terry used six rolls of film, every frame on every roll is now a piece of art because we all know that picture mm. and it's almost a cliche. So it's, it's a classic, yeah. Um, well, it is. You say it's a classic, but the frame before, the frame after, 10 frames before, 10 frames after, that's the world we're living in now where every mark is has, has become important because that period from the mid-50s till around now has become fetishized to such an extent that we've become obsessed about it. And we've become obsessed about it in a creative way and in, in, in a commercial way, too. I think that's really interesting. I've read Sweet Dreams, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and Shiny and New, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I can't wait to, to read uh, Faster Than a Cannibal. Um, I just want to bring up David Bowie. Uh, because I know you had a, a lot of relationship with him. And also, when I was at Tashin, I we published the Mick Rock book, and I, I really got close with Mick Rock, and I sold a lot of his photographs, particularly one, which is David Bowie at Haddon Hall, where he's looking. It's a magnificent picture. I, I was so thrilled when I sold it. And uh, he's looking in... Um, in the mirror to his own reflection. And there's one where he's also, all McRock pictures, where he's holding a clarinet. Um, so I really kind of fell in love. I've always loved David Bowie. But if you don't mind me asking, um, you had a, a you know quite a long relationship with him. What was he like? Uh, he was everything you wanted him to be. Everything you wanted him, him to be. But I think one element 
I mean, there's a good film that's just come out called Moon Age Daydream, which is a very impressionistic. It's doc. out now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen posters. It's, it's called Moon Age Daydream. It's a very impressionistic documentary, not particularly journalistic, but it's good and it's um, it's uh, it's long and it's immersive and it's a, it, it's it's a, it's it's a great ride, and it's the first officially sanctioned documentary or piece of film, long-form piece of film that's been sanctioned by the estate. And it presents a very particular version of David Bowie. And there's nothing about it which is wrong or, or inaccurate. And it presents him as this intellectual, creative wanderer, genius creator, etc., etc. all of which is true. But what people rarely talk about is... David Bowie the bloke because David Bowie loved a dirty joke he loved a laugh he was genuinely funny probably would have liked to have been a better comic actor loved Viz magazine I think people think it might be inconsequential but if you look at his appearance in extras yeah. where he plays himself great scene. in in the Ricky Gervais sit, sitcom I mean that's that's a great piece of pop culture and it's a great example of how Bowie wasn't just this austere tortured sort of um, doer creative Bowie was many things but I think that his sort of laddish knockabout persona was probably closer to what he really is you speak to Julian Temple when they were filming Absolute Beginners and uh, some of the pop videos around that time in the mid, early to mid-80s. Um, and even though that's a version of Bowie which wasn't particularly successful and didn't really resonate with that many people because that was a, a creative fallow period for him and Absolute Beginners wasn't very successful. That's probably closer to what he was like as a real person. Last two questions. If you had all the money in the world, which artwork would you buy? Um, I would probably, well, as it's a silly question. Um, Not my question, my, my, uh, my girlfriend asked me. I would, uh, I w- I w- uh, if I had all the money in the world, I would probably buy something which I knew I could sell five minutes later for twice as much money. You have my email. Uh, you have my details. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for, for, for personal gratification or for buying something that's, um, uh, oh, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think if what I would probably do is commission somebody to do something rather than buy something if I had unlimited funds. Um, and I think that's what people do. Almost answered, but I'll, I'll let you know. No, but it. I think that's what people do. I think that's what the rich do. Uh, and I know a lot. I know know a fair number of the rich people who who do precisely that. It's 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 not so much different from having your portrait painted, mm. or having Annie Leibovitch take your photograph, or commissioning X to do your own your own work, which will never be seen by anybody. On that, your portrait hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, doesn't it? It does. By Fergus Greer. Greer. That's right. Yeah. Um, I will go and look at it this week. Um, <laughs> and very last question. Um, who would you recommend as the next guest on A Life Curated? I, I mean, I like, I like listening to, to young artists and young, young creatives. And I think there is a... 
think there's a danger at the moment that there is so much media that, that there's, I think people get reach saturation quite quickly, particularly because of social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the reasons I love Instagram is because you're constantly bombarded with images and you constantly see new people. I mean, I bought so much art by just seeing images of things that I like and contacting the artists and going to see them in their studio. And I love that. Yeah. Um, it's good for them. It's good for everybody. I think it's fascinating. Dylan, it's always a huge pleasure. And thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>